God loves you. But what does that really mean? That some impersonal force, galaxies away, may consider you from time to time? Or that you are a single drop in a vast ocean of humanity and God cares for all of it? There are billions of lives, billions of stories. Can we really believe he has great destinies planned for all of them? Surely the ruler of the universe has more important affairs than to notice the needs of one singular individual. But hear this, nothing could be further from the truth. When God says, I love you, it means that he crafted every detail of your being. Your every feature is his perfect design. His mind perceives your worries and your thoughts. His heart is broken by your pain. You are his child, created in his image. Your value exceeds all the riches of earth. Your worth extends beyond the stars. And though you may be unaware, he's carefully constructing the events of your life to build his kingdom. If you are willing, he can and will achieve wonders through your hands. It is the deepest passion, the most meaningful promise. It is your security, your hope, and your future. It is the truth beyond doubt. God loves you. Good morning. You believe that? Yeah, God loves you. There's no doubt about it. He's proven himself over and over and over again. It's good to be back together with you, with the Lord. More importantly, to be with the Lord. Amen. <laughs> it's always good to be with each other, and uh, so I'm glad uh, all of you have come out. Boy, I feel like I'm, I feel like Thad when somebody else speaks, you know, but now <laughs> uh, Daryl's going to be coming and speaking to us today, so we're kind of up, so I can, it's kind of like Kilroy was here or something, you know. Uh, but anyway, it is good to, to be back together with you uh, this morning. Uh, you know, we're, we're re- real thankful for, uh, for this week. Uh, as many of you and, and, and a lot of people in our community uh, took the opportunity um, to walk through our tabernacle. And how many of you uh, went through the tabernacle? Well, a good many of you went through. That's great. It was great, wasn't it? Really good. I tell you, it was a real worshipful time. I think a very prayerful uh, learning experience for me, and uh, it, it just reminded me of God's plan for our salvation, you know, before the foundation of the world. That's amazing. That is amazing to me. We, you know, did you know we serve an amazing God? <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, it's just one, it's, it was a wonderful thing. Well, today's the last day, and uh, so it's all going to start coming down the, this afternoon. It's going to start in uh, I did talk to Roxanne. There are a few slots, a couple of slots. So if you have not had a chance to go through it, you need to take advantage of it. And uh, so uh, you need to talk to Roxanne, and she can maybe plug you in somewhere this afternoon. But we do thank uh, Roxanne and Kevin uh, for bringing that to us. They had done this several years back uh, down in Louisiana, I believe it was, and it was a success. People just, uh, it was just a wonderful thing. And so they brought it to us, and then 
uh, Bill and Debbie White and Lou Ann Hearn and several of other people, you know, uh, have, have helped and all that, and so we thank them. But uh, uh, we're looking forward to hearing about the comments, hearing the comments from people, and so that's going to be a, a blessing to hear that because I, I know that there's uh, a tremendous amount of positivity about that. A video that you just saw uh, starts off and it just reminds us, you know, that God does love us. Um, whether, you know, whether we're a believer or not, God still loves us. He loves his creation. From the very beginning, he loves us. Very beginning, he knew all about us. He created. He, he provided, but, but he provided the means for all of us uh, to be forgiven and to be declared righteous and um, in his, uh, righteous in his sight because uh, we're really not righteous, but we're righteous in his sight, and that's the only thing that matters. And, um, but, the, but yet we can worship him because that's what we're designed to do. That's how God designed us is to worship him. And, the, and we can also have the opportunity to spend eternity with him. Wow, what a great God we serve. Um, we were reminded of the eternal destination that we have this last week. You know, as uh, our brother Ray Simmons went to be with the Lord, we were praying for Elizabeth and the family uh, during that time. Uh, we had the, uh, the graveside service was last, was last Friday. It was this past Friday. George uh, spoke, and he spoke very, very well of Ray, by all means, because Ray was just a, a tremendous uh, Christian man, and we all had the opportunity of knowing him. Uh, but more than anything, uh, he spoke well of the Lord because that's what Ray would want. Let's this, this, this don't talk so much about Ray. Let's talk about the Lord, and that's exactly what George did. And so uh, we just rejoice in his new eternal home. We're going to miss him. He's a, he was a great guy, and, but, um, uh, but we're going to re rejoice in his new home. Uh, we also need to pray for our pastor. If you all know that Thad, Power Pastor Thad, had, had surgery last Friday, and uh, so I uh, talked to him this morning, or I texted him this morning. I said, how are you doing? He said, well, I'm heading in the right direction. So he's doing that. So he's waiting for the doctors to come in and tell him that maybe he can go home this afternoon. And so uh, let's just pray for a speedy recovery. I know that his plan is to be back in two weeks, uh, October 3rd. So I hope that's the Lord's plan. We want to see that and, and everything. But uh, just pray for a speedy recovery. And uh, we also are thankful that uh, as Thad's away, you know, we, can, we always have guys who can fill the pulpit. And that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing. You know, a lot of people, you have the pastor who's the, you know, the, the dictator and the only tater. And, you know, the, uh, you know, so whenever he's away, you know, you have to go scrambling to find somebody to, uh, to hire to come speak to him, you know. Well, we're, thank we're thankful we don't have that. And Daryl Monkus is going to come and, and, uh, and speak to us in a while, bring the word to us. So y'all be praying for uh, for uh, Daryl as we uh, go through our worship time today. But you know that, uh, that video there, uh, God does, he just demonstrates his loving kindness to us, to all of us. And when, when Christ walked on the earth, um, did you know that he even prayed for us? I mean, for us. Uh, and I, what I'd like for us to do to begin our worship time this morning, I, uh, I'd like to be looking at a prayer that Jesus prayed. Uh, and, and what he did, he created, I mean, he, he prayed for you and for me specifically. And uh, w what a loving God we have that looks down and knows us at that point and looks down and prays for us. So we're going to find that in John 17. So if you have your Bibles, you'd like to open that up, John 17. You know, the context is this. Uh, Jesus had been sharing with his disciples all sorts of things that Jesus knew that he needed to let them know 
before uh, before his crucifixion, and um, he um, all of this takes place you know between chapters thirteen and chapter sixteen actually. In chapter sixteen, he tells them all about his death and his resurrection and and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and so. Uh, he begins to pray. He pulls, pulls back and he begins to pray. First, he prays for himself. He's praying that, you know, he, and, he, and he's just mentioning, he said, God, he, uh, that I and, and my father are one. Uh, and he's, 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 so he's praying about himself. And then he turns and he starts praying for his disciples that he has been with for, you know, a couple of years now. And he's been, he's, he starts praying for them. And then the third part is exciting to me. Because now he starts praying for me. He starts praying for you. And uh, what a loving God would, would do something like that, would re not only remember the ones that are around him, but the ones that are going to even be going down there. So uh, if, you, if you take uh, John 17, and let's start, start with uh, verse number 20, and we'll read through number 26. I'm just going to read from the wall here. It says, uh, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. What a wonderful Savior we have to pray for us in that manner. Let's just all pray together right now. Maybe. Father, Lord, you are the, the mighty God that's in heaven. You are the eternal one who has always been and always will ever be, the great I am. Lord, you are the creator of all the heavens and all the earth. You are the one who spoke everything into existence. You are the mighty, the powerful God who knew each of us before the foundation of the world. You are the one that sent forth your only son to pay the penalty for the sin of all mankind. Your word says that your son emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Lord, your word says that he showed his love for us 
And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, there's a song that reminds me that says, how can, how can I say thanks for the things you have done for me? Things so undeserved, yet you give to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to Thee. And Lord, that's our prayer this morning. Father, You've been so good to us. Father, we want to uh, uh, specifically pray for Elizabeth Simmons this morning, the rest of the family, because they're still dealing with the separation from Ray. But Lord, we are thankful for Ray and his life, and we're thankful that he's living in his new mansion now. He's with you, Lord, and that uh, he's enjoying what you have in store for all of us who believe in you. And, Lord, we're thankful for his life and what he meant to so many of us. But, Lord, we pray for Elizabeth during this time and the family. And, Lord, we would also lift up our pastor Thad to you, Lord, that you would restore him quickly, Father, that he would be back among us. Lord, his desire is to be with his people, to shepherd his people, he is the true pastor to this people of this church. And, Lord, I just ask you that you would uh, help him to uh, recover and to uh, be able to bring forth your word as he always does. So, Lord, we ask you that you just be with him today and in the next coming weeks. Lord, more than anything, Lord, we thank you for your, your everlasting love. Lord, we thank you for the power of your cross, of the cross, Lord, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. Lord, we thank you for the, that you are the living God who never leaves us or forsakes us. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who you sent to us to guide us into all truth. All these things we pray in the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Let's all stand. Let's just worship the Lord together. Singing and praising his name. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy.
Good morning. I'm delighted to be with you this morning and to be sharing. Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage today from Mark chapter 2. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses. Uh, on behalf of my family, uh, we would like to extend uh, a sincere thank you to all of you for your messages of sympathy uh, during our time of loss. Uh, Glenneth lost uh, her brother, so our brother, Alistair, and uh, we thank you for uh, your support, for your love, uh, and for your compassion toward us. So, well, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, uh, and the title of today's lesson is Something They've Never Seen Before. Um, I was watching Ole Miss play last night, and... Uh, Matt Corral scored seven touchdowns, tied the uh, uh, school record for most touchdowns in a game, and if he had scored one more, he would have broke it, but they took him out. So I might have seen something never seen before in Ole Miss football history, but uh, I wasn't going to stay up that late. So if anyway, if, uh, if they uh, left him on the field. So, but anyway... Uh, Jesus' prayer, as read by Ron there in John 17, it's a call, an appeal for unity. You know, we live in a world uh, that at every turn seeks to divide us, isolate us in many nefarious ways. So, but we live in extraordinary times, don't we? Uh, in a world system headed by the God of this world who has blinded the eyes, blinded the minds of the unbelieving, as Paul described to Satan uh, as he was writing to the Corinthians. You know, in our day, we have uh, technology. You can have technology and an inquiring mind, and you can see with a little research how vividly and how widespread this evil is that has enveloped humanity since the fall of man, and there's an increasing hostility toward any narrative that deviates from the devil's schemes. And with a little research, we can see uh, Satan's activities through his minions in the form of globalist, tyrannical-minded oligarchs who have over a period of time stoked a worldwide debt crisis uh, to usher in an entirely new economic and social order. We live in extraordinary days, days that, you know, we're witnessing a massive transition, a collapse of not only our entire society, but the entire world economy. You know, our, win our women's Sunday school class is now going through a study on the deterioration of America. So, um, one of my friends on Facebook he said, you know, the Antichrist hadn't got here yet, but his cheerleaders are already on the field. So, that's so true. Uh, yet mankind, we've experienced these sorts of days before, haven't we? Um, Edward Gibbon, the author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he wrote this. He said, corruption is the most infallible symptom of constitutional liberty. 
in a society where rights and liberties are explicated by a constitution, there's freedom to obey, but there's also freedom to disobey. And this is precisely why John Adams, our second president, so rightfully stated, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Did you know that Donald Lutz, in his book, The Origins of American Constitutionalism, he pointed out that the single most cited source influencing our founding documents was the Bible, the very source of 34% of founder quotes. Yet we have undergone immense change since the days of John Winthrop's City on a Hill, haven't we? Uh, Leonard Ravenhill said this, America's not dying because of the strength of humanism, but the weakness of evangelism. Uh, Leith Anderson said this, he said, the simple definition of evangelism is those who know telling those who don't. Could it be that this is one of the main problems with America today, that those who know are not telling those who don't? If someone is genuinely dear to you, then nothing can stop you from singing his or her praises. Our society has gone adrift, having loosened its moorings, much like Israel. Isaiah said this, uh, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its, own, its uh, owner's manage, uh, manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on Him. Many of you may have seen the movie The Gladiator, one of my favorites. It stars Russell Crowe, and it's set during a time of calamity, the fall of the Roman Empire. And in that movie, you see many parallels to the events of our day. You have General Maximus, a true statesman who's loyal to the vision of, of Rome as decreed under Marcus Aurelius. And yet there are myriads of individuals throughout the film who are out for self-exaltation. There's been a change in power to the cruel emperor Commodus. And the once esteemed empire now in no way resembles the empire as it was under Marcus Aurelius. The last of the rulers known as the five good emperors. And the last emperor of the Pax Romana. The great era of peace and stability. Commodus's gross negligence and foolishness led to volatility, civil war. On the front end and down the road, it completely undermined the Roman imperial system. So it was a time of transition from one ruler to another ruler, the latter a ruler who went down in history as a complete disaster. At one point in the movie, Proximo, the leader of a band of gladiators who would fight to the death for entertainment and public spectacles, said to the captured uh, General Maximus, Listen to me, 
Learn from me. I wasn't the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. Win the crowd and you'll win your freedom. And Maximus replied, I will win the crowd. And you know, in that Russell Crowe voice, the only Russell Crowe can do, I will win the crowd. I will give them something they've never seen before. Okay. Well, this is the title. This is the title of our lesson today. Something they've never seen before. You know, my, my illustration is merely one of a mortal man who is ensnared in the debauchery of public spectacles. But uh, Mark 2, Mark 2 chronicles a showdown. It's a showdown between the Son of Man, the God-Man, and the religious leaders, the earthly power structure of the Israelites. Now, Jesus was at war, of course, of course with the, with the uh, rulers as well, but Mark focuses here. He focuses here on the tension, okay, between Jesus and the religious leaders. So turn with me to Mark 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of the second chapter of Mark's gospel. Now, uh, at, the, uh, at the end of Mark 1, during Jesus' initial ministry on earth, Jesus led a number of preaching tours uh, all over the region of Galilee, which is located in the northern part of Israel. And on one of those tours, Jesus does something only God can do in confronting and healing a leper. Verses 40 to 45. Uh, now, of course, this was something that they had never seen before, as there had never been, you know, anyone during the course of human history who had ever healed a leper. Uh, furthermore, the manner in which the healing occurs is indeed marvelous, as Jesus healed by way of a simple pronouncement, reaching out in compassion and touching the leper. Uh, in the Old Testament, we saw that Moses pleaded with the Lord in prayer. And uh, Miriam was eventually restored of leprosy. We saw that Naaman was also healed from leprosy after washing in the River Jordan. Uh, yet there are no historical records of lepers being healed. Interestingly, there was a procedure set forth in the Mosaic Law which stated that if any individual was cleansed, he was to come to the tabernacle and pronounce that God had healed him. Now, this was set forth in the law to allow the priest to investigate the ordeal and see that it was an, indeed authentic. Uh, thus, when Jesus cleansed this leper, he presented himself in Jerusalem as he was instructed by Jesus to pronounce his healing. And this was done, of course, to attest that someone with divine power, had emerged in Galilee. Someone with the power to do something that they have never seen before. Obviously, Jesus' healing drew the eyes and the ears and the ire of the religious leaders as they sought to investigate this lowly Galilean. And that happens and begins in Mark 2. Now, there are five instances of conflict uh, between Jesus and the religious authorities from Mark 2.1 all the way through Mark 3.6. However, in these initial 12 verses, Mark emphasizes the hostility that Jesus faced from Israel's teachers of the law. Now, the Roman and Jewish political leaders opposed him as well, but Mark emphasizes the showdown between Jesus and the power structure. 
uh, the legal representatives of his day. Now we're going to focus on this initial conflict in the first 12 verses of chapter 2, which record the healing and forgiveness of a paralyzed person. And many of us may feel a great little like this paralyzed man as we look at world events today that are unfolding around us. We may at times feel a sense of powerlessness as we see a spiritual warfare on a grand scale against the rulers and against the authorities and against the spiritual forces of evil. So, um, but pardon me here, I think I've skipped over a few slides here. So, uh, but uh, but at the, uh, we, we can feel small, can't we? With all the forces that are happening uh, in tremendous numbers, but you know, if God's on our side, who can be against us, right? Uh, and there's strength in numbers. So, uh, let's look here. Let's look at uh, verse 1 here. When Jesus came back to Capernaum, a few days later, it was heard that he was at home. After Jesus had completed his initial, his initial preaching tour throughout Galilee, he, he returned to Capernaum. And it was in Nazareth that Jesus lived out the very early years of his life, but he inevitably moved uh, to Capernaum, a small town on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And it was here in Capernaum that Jesus established headquarters, his headquarters, his base of operation for his earthly ministry. Uh, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Uh, Jesus lived among the people of Capernaum and he made his blessings available to them and yet the majority of people in Capernaum did not respond to Jesus and believe him as Savior. Uh, Verse 2, and many were gathered there so that there there was no longer space, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Jesus was proclaiming to them that The king that the Old Testament had prophesied of and had anticipated had indeed arrived. That his kingdom was coming and that they should prepare for that coming kingdom by believing in him as the promised Messiah. And he was preaching the word of truth that the God-man, the Messiah, had indeed arrived. Jesus was an incredibly popular figure mostly due to his healings and the various miracles that he was performing. But it was Jesus' popularity with the masses that created headaches for the magistrates. And we see this dilemma emerge in verse 3. Verse 3, And some people came, bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. Four men, you know, perhaps one on, you know, each corner of a pallet. Uh, bring a paralyzed man who cannot get to Jesus because of the massive crowd. Uh, Verse 4, and when they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralyzed man was lying. You know, this verse reminded me of a particular joke by comedian James Gregory. (laughs) How many of you have heard of James Gregory? You may not have heard of him in church before, okay, but... But he once told a joke uh, pointed at the airline industry, and he said, Oh, and let's not forget about Aloha Airlines. They're the ones that had an airplane that took off as a hardtop and came back as a convertible. The top blew off. 
the top blew off. And the dumb things that people will say once they get off the plane, these are people who flew in and landed in an airplane that didn't have a top. It didn't have a top. And one lady actually said this. She said, at first, I didn't even notice. I just, I just reached up to push the stewardess button and the sun was in my eyes. <laughs> they took the roof off. Did you hear what I said? They took the roof off the house, okay? That happens here, what, maybe every 20 years, okay? All right? They took the roof off. They were determined to get their friend to Jesus. Now, the homes in Palestine, I want to take a minute to talk about the homes. The homes in Palestine in Jesus' day, they were single-room homes where, you know, several family members would have lived there, and there was a section for livestock that could be brought inside, but there was a stairway that led to the roof where people would go to refresh. And by taking in, you know, fresh air or cooling off, you know, maybe it's a hot day and they wanted to get to the roof and cool off. Or maybe they wanted to hang their clothes out to dry, okay? Or go get their clothes that had been hanging out to dry. But, you know, in the, in the book of Acts, in chapter 10 in the book of Acts, Peter goes up on the roof to pray. And so these four men carry their friend in a cot with one on each corner of the pallet, up the stairs on the outside of the house where Jesus is preaching. And we don't know whether this was Jesus' house or somebody else's house, but they began to tear through the roof of this house, which meant tearing through large tiles that straddled beams as well as digging through dirt and grasses growing on the roof over the tiles. Uh, they, they had this thatch, and an earth, and it, what it did is it served to cool down the house in the, the summer months. And so this is, this is no simple ordeal. <laughs> this is no simple ordeal. It's not like taking a chainsaw and through our roof, okay? This is no simple ordeal. These men had to tear through the roof and dig through the dirt and the grass, much of which comes raining down on the people below. And so they did all of this because they had a friend who needed Jesus' help in total belief that Jesus could indeed meet this man's need. Verse 5, and seeing their faith, their faith was evidenced by the fact that there was no obstacle that was going to prevent them from getting this man to Jesus. Uh, Warren Wearsby says this. He says, We ought to admire several characteristics of these men, qualities that ought to mark us as fishers of men. For one thing, they were deeply concerned about their friend and wanted to see him helped. They had the faith to believe that Jesus could and would meet his need. They did not simply pray about it, but they put some feet to their prayers. And they did not permit the difficult circumstances to discourage them. They worked together and dared to do something different. And Jesus rewarded their efforts. How easy it would have been for them to say, well, there's no sense trying to get to Jesus today. Maybe we can come back tomorrow. Look at verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralyzed man, Son, 
your sins are forgiven. Now, this was a shocking thing to pronounce as the Old Testament said that God was the only one with the authority to forgive sins. Uh, in the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, and there are plenty of other verses, okay? But the book of Exodus states this. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law, and sin. As I said, there are other passages too that also indicate that it's God's prerogative to forgive sins. So Israel's legal representatives reasoned in their hearts, who is this Jesus coming along and saying, my son, your sins are forgiven. Clearly here, Jesus does far more for this man than his friends could have ever imagined. Not only does he physically heal him, he pronounces that his sins are forgiven. Astonishing. Notice that Jesus took the time for this man who descended through a hole in the roof as all the masses were packed shoulder to circle, shoulder to shoulder encircling this home. And Jesus was filled with compassion, never care, never callous, not on his cell phone. There were one in those days. Ceaselessly working for the salvation of all mankind. If we're so absorbed with our service unto the Lord to the point that you know, we cannot take time to talk to other people about their needs, then we are indeed too busy. I'm preaching to myself as well. We can get too busy, can't we? Um, verse 6. Um, but some of the scribes were sitting there and thinking it over in their hearts. So the priests are sitting presumably right up front at this house where Jesus is preaching that is teeming with people both inside and out. But the teachers of the law have been given preferential treatment by the people. So here is the God-man healing the sick, and performing various miracles, and the masses still defer to the traditional powers that be uh, you know, continuing to treat these men still with tremendous reverence. These men, the religious leaders of Israel, they were guided by Mosaic law. They were the lawmakers of their day whose interpretation of the law bestowed just or unjust uh, legislation. And they are described here to be reasoning in their hearts. As lawmakers, you know, they had to, to properly comprehend, you know, what the Old Testament taught. But in their worldly minds, what are they thinking? If he increases, we decrease. That's what they're thinking. These representatives throughout Jesus' ministry, they try to stump him. Uh, they try to shame him with trick questions, but they're never successful. Cancel culture didn't work with Jesus. These brood of vipers or 
family of snakes, as later uh, Jesus called them, uh, they realized the very possibility of losing their power, losing their social status, losing their office, losing their position, and their privileges, which were often attained through fraud, bribery, graft, kickbacks in dealing with the Roman and Jewish political leaders of the day. They truly felt threatened, and they are eager to put this Nazarene on trial, but in the annals of history, it's the teachers of the law who are weighed and who are measured. So, verse 7, look at their response. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? No man can do this. So in that sense, they're right. No man could do this. This is no man. No Old Testament prophet, no, no merely a man, no Old Testament prophet claimed this authority. So here was the God-man, the very one whom the Old Testament and the prophets had foretold of, who would come and the lawmakers whose duty it was to properly teach the Old Testament, they're, e- they're not able to recognize who he is and inevitably what do they declare him to be. They declare him to be a fraud, a blasphemer. Uh, this Jesus is in contempt. This Jesus is disrespectful. This Jesus has an utter lack of reverence for the status quo. Indeed, he does. This family of snakes was filled with malice, having reduced the Mosaic law from a system meant to convict the soul and cause a longing for the coming and promised Redeemer to one of mere external observance of religious rituals to elevate individuals in self righteousness furthermore they had erected a system of haves and have-nots a system in which they felt they were superior to others because of the title and the position that they held sound familiar mark 14 in mark 14 we see that this is the very thing that resulted in jesus's trial and crucifixion Uh, Mark writes this. He says, But he kept silent and did not offer any answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and said to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, Prophesy! And then the officers took custody of Jesus and slapped him in the face. Verses 8 and 9, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit 
that they were thinking that way within themselves said to them, why are you thinking about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? Which is easier? Is it it easier to say to the paralyzed man that your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk? Uh, Clearly it would have been you know, far easier to proclaim his sins as forgiven because such a pronouncement can't be substantiated. If Jesus had said, arise, take up your pallet and walk, and the paralytic could not do it, everyone would know indeed that this Galilean was a fraud. Yet, if he had just said, your sins are forgiven you, he could be counterfeit or he could be authentic. There was no way to verify such a pronouncement. So, uh, verses 10 to 11, verses 10 to 11 uh, say, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Jesus, as said by Hunter here, he says, Jesus did the miracle which they could see that they might know that he had done the other one that they could not see. Jesus carries out the more problematic scenario from the viewpoint of the religious leaders in order to prove that he can forgive sins, which is preposterous and perplexing for them. Uh, Now, how would this incident have gone down if the leaders weren't present? The larger issue is who is this man? And this is the very thing that these leaders were to investigate and to determine in accordance with the Mosaic law. Well, who does this Jesus say he is? I want you to notice in verse 10 there, Jesus utilizes a new title for himself, the Son of Man. A title that recurs over and over again in Mark's gospel. Uh, This title, Son of Man, is one of the key messianic titles of the old testament in daniel 7 daniel daniel had a vision there of the messiah and his coming kingdom in the future and and daniel says this excuse me daniel says i kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Messiah is identified by the title Son of Man. And this is the very term that Jesus uses of himself in Mark 2. Notice that he doesn't just clearly speak of himself as Messiah. He cloaks his words. You know, militaries do this when communicating so as not to reveal their plans to the enemy. Well, well, Jesus is engaged in warfare, spiritual warfare. Jesus is going to war here for the souls of humanity. And by utilizing this term son of man Jesus was indirectly saying I am indeed I am indeed the anointed one the promised Messiah the word made flesh Uh, the reason for this is that by the time Jesus 
was manifest on earth. The Israelites had narrowed the understanding of the term as one connoting mere political deliverance. To boldly assert such a thing would undoubtedly bring retribution as the authorities would have quickly put Jesus down as some violent extremist. And so Jesus uses his, his words carefully. And in Jesus' day, the Israelites, what, what did they do? They yearned for deliverance from the rule of the Roman Empire. And therefore, Jesus uses this term, son of man, a term they should have recognized to avoid uh, misunderstanding that he was not merely a physical deliverer, but he was far more than that. As he was the one who would, as Daniel said, come and establish a kingdom without end. Uh, Verse 11. Um, I believe I may have skipped that verse on the PowerPoint, but you may want to look in your Bible there. So, uh, Verse 11. Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your pallet, and go home. Uh, What does the world say? What does the world say? The world says, you've made your bed, now sleep in it. Right? You heard that phrase before? Jesus says this. He says, arise, take up your bed, and go home. I want you to notice the contrast. Jesus also gives him three commands. Arise, take up your pallet, and go home. First, Jesus says, arise. A one-word pronouncement. Jesus does what was you know, more difficult in healing this paralytic, thereby validating his assertion that he does have authority to forgive sins as well. You know, Colossians tells us that Jesus was the instrumental cause of creation. Christ is before all things, meaning he predates the the creation. And in him, all things literally subsist or exist. So he holds it all together. He and the Father are the one. And thus, much like creation, where it comes into existence by the pronouncement of the word of the triune God, let there be light. So Jesus heals and restores this paralytic by the simple pronouncement of his word. Arise. Hebrews speaks of the word of God as being sharper than any two-edged sword. Like a scalpel, it cuts into our being, not to slay us, but to heal us spiritually, restoring us to the Lord. Arise also emphasizes the criticalness of responding in faith to Jesus' words. His words were words of restoration in his earthly ministry, and they continue to be that today as people continue to respond in faith. Uh, secondly, Jesus commands him to take up his pallet. Jesus heals him, and then he calls this man to be responsible. Whereas before he was continually carried around by others, now he is called to be responsible, to carry his own pallet. Uh, the Lord longs for us to be personally responsible for our actions when he heals us in light of what has been bestowed upon us. Not to be a phony, but rather a responsible ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, Jesus commands the healed to go home. Jesus gives this man 
who has been healed a word of direction. In the same way, once we have had our sins forgiven and been healed by faith in Christ, our Lord gives us a word of direction. Hebrews states, uh, for this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. He has commissioned us to what? To go ye therefore into all the world and make ye disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're called to maturity. We're called to grow into the fullness of Christ, to witness, to proclaim to others the redemptive power and the graciousness, the graciousness of God. Regarding our responsibility to evangelize, True Blood says this, evangelism's not a professional job for a few trained men, but is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. And thus to be effective witnesses, what must we do? We must master the scriptures so the scriptures can master us. So, there is faith, responsibility, and direction. And notice this, too. Jesus is no fraud. Jesus does not bribe. Jesus heals first, and then he calls for the man to do something in return. He does not ask for something first his gift of grace is unconditional jesus had already extended his hand of salvation and he asked for response arise take up your pallet and go home is the pattern of god for it is by grace that you have been saved Verse 12, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now the word amazed, it's a very, very strong term in the Greek text. Literally, it means that they were out of their minds. And this is understandable as no one in history of the world had ever seen anything like this. The healing of the paralytic demonstrated that Jesus was divine. He was the God-man. He was the anointed one. He was the Messiah promised of the Old Testament. And yet, what continued to be the response of the people? As we see this in all the Gospels, we see that the people though initially amazed, kept coming to Jesus only for what? Physical healing, but very rarely for forgiveness of sins or biblical discernment. Is this true today? Well, what's been the narrative from the world for the last 18 months? The world narrative has been one of obsession over physical well-being. In our society, we've always had diverging opinions regarding 
treatments concerning our individual physical well-being. People do not want to get sick. And when people do get sick, they want to feel better. But a continual focus on the physical is very superficial. Uh, Our focus as believers should not be on the physical. It should be on the spiritual, on the eternal matters. Proverbs 12.25 says this, says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. We're called, we're called to arise, take up our pallet, and go home. The great physician has healed us of our sins. He has forgiven us of this disease of sin. And as Hudson Taylor said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. And if we're ever to be effective at evangelism, seeing as how the healing is only done by the work of God, we must summon Him. We must summon the Lord to soften the hearts of the lost. Billy Graham said it like this, Prayer is crucial in evangelism. Only God can change the heart of someone who is in rebellion against Him. No matter how logical our arguments or how fervent our appeals, our words will accomplish nothing unless the Spirit of God prepares the way. Having experienced His unconditional forgiveness, we should be armed, shouldn't we, in prayer? Ready to go out in the world not with a message of fear, but with his message of hope and joy in telling others about the forgiver. When someone comes to know Christ, what do they do? They become amazed. They become out of their minds. They glorify God because the message of grace is something they've never seen before. We call out to the Lord for his help. And what does he give us? He gives us so much more. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Pray with me. We're not going to close here. Uh, Ron's going to come up and do that, but uh, pray with me. Father in heaven, we bless you for a word of truth. Uh, You have not abandoned us to speculate, but you have given us absolutes by bearing yourself in human flesh that we might know of your goodness and your graciousness. And Father, I pray that if anyone is here today 
and anyone that has not realized, that, and, and that maybe they heard in this message today and they realized that their need for forgiveness of sins, Father, I pray that through your Spirit, you would beckon them to arise, that your Spirit would cause them to arise and to place their faith in the Savior. And Father, if there should be one here today that has put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they have fallen off and they have not been responsible with what you have entrusted to them, I pray that through your Spirit you might convict them to take up their pallet and to be responsible ambassadors for the Lord, whereby they may go and proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sin and total restoration made possible by faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Amen. He is our Savior, and He's our God. Boy, what a wonderful Lord and Savior we've um, been with today. And uh, so I'm just glad that we would be able to be together. Just a few announcements before we, uh, before we leave here. Uh, on October 3rd, we have Family Matters is having a, uh, what they call field day. You've heard of field day. We've had it several times. And the whole church is invited. And uh, so it's going to be October 3rd, right after the service. So it'll be at 1230, from 1230, I think 330. And, uh, and they're going to furnish all the hot dogs and potato chips and, and all that kind of stuff. But what you do need to bring is your chair, okay? You've got to bring your own chair or you can just sit on the ground or whatever you want to do. But anyway, it's going to be a good day. We can just pray for a, uh, a real uh, uh, beautiful day for that, for that day. Uh, also, I just want to remind you of the tabernacle. There are a couple of slots left. See, uh, uh, um, um, what's her name? <laughs> um, Roxanne. See, Roxanne. Raise your hand, Roxanne. If uh, there she is, right back there. If you'd like to uh, go through the tabernacle, like I said, it's going to start being deconstructed today or this afternoon. So uh, if you, this is your last chance, and uh, it's been a, it's been a great thing. Thank you for those who've done that. Another thing too is Awana. Um, Awana starts back. Is it this week? It starts back. Uh, Andrea is in bad, bad need of some help. Uh, we haven't had the volunteers come forth like they've c- come before. And we're kind of wondering how we're going to do it, but we're going to get started, and we're hoping that we're going to be able to do it. Even I have had to volunteer to do some things that, now I'm going to be working with some of your kids, and they may not be the same, you know, when I get through with them. But, um, but if, you know, if you were a little concerned about that, just say, Ron, I'll, I'll handle this. Yeah. But, because this is not my forte. But, hey, uh, sometimes you've got to stretch yourself. And do some things you're not real comfortable doing. But we need, she needs some help tremendously. So please see, uh, I just wish everybody would rush and just tell her, hey, I'm, I want to, to volunteer. So please help her out there. So, um, by the way, the, the field day, excuse me, I, I didn't say the field day is going to be at, uh, out there on Springville Road, um, out there where the old uh, Springville Library Library is got a little playground there. Got that big area. They got the uh, 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 the little disc off thing and everything. That's where it's going to be. So that's going to be October third. Okay. Well, let's all stand, and we're going to be dismissed. And I've asked Brent Mizell. He's just right back there on that microphone. Or you can come, you can come up here, Brent. And uh... thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank Thee for Your Word this morning. We thank Thee for the challenge from Your Word, Lord, to be more like You and to share the gospel with all those we come in contact. Many of us have family members who don't know You, Lord, and the time is getting short, and I pray that You would help us to reach out to them and share the gospel with them at least one more time, Lord, and I pray that Your Spirit would work in their hearts and that they would come to know You. We thank you for this time together. We pray for our pastor, Lord. We pray for Thad. I pray that you'd raise him up soon. And I pray that you would help him to be in less pain and that you would continue to heal him. Thank you and go with us now and bless us. And thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.